Merry Christmas, everybody. You know, technically, it's not Christmas yet. We have a couple more days. We're close, but we are actually still in the season of Advent. Those of you who know me well know that one of my mild pet peeves is when people start saying Merry Christmas too early. Like, it's, we're just cleaning up the Thanksgiving meal dishes, and people are saying Merry Christmas. And I'm looking at the church calendar saying, we've got four weeks of Advent coming along. I think we as a people have forgotten how to wait. Advent is a season designed to have us wait, to have us hope for, to have us long for, to have us anticipate. We have forgotten when we rush to Christmas without celebrating Advent, we've forgotten how to wait. You know, we can learn how to wait from children, actually. We think of children as always being impatient, but I've learned a bit of how to wait from children. A couple of years ago, my son, Riley, was five years old at the time, and my daughter, Eva, was three. And we were talking about birthdays and whose birthday was coming up next. And uh, I said to Eva, I said that Riley's birthday is next. He'll turn six in January. And my then five-year-old son said, oh, no, 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 Daddy. Not if heaven comes down before then. He said that, and he meant that. And it stopped me in my tracks. I realized I, in my adulthood, had forgotten to anticipate the second coming of Christ. That's what Advent points us towards. We remember his first coming, his birth. We celebrate that. But in Advent, we look forward to, we anticipate, we long for, we hope for his return. As soon as my son said that, oh no, daddy, not if heaven comes down before then. I immediately remembered being his age. And I remember anticipating Christ's return. I remember lying on my bed and uh, tilting my head in just such a way that I would look out my bedroom window into the sky because I thought it would be pretty cool if I got to be one of the first eyewitnesses of Christ's return. I waited for him. But then as I grew older, as I grew into adulthood, somewhere along the way, I forgot to wait. I forgot to wait. But I learned that from my son that day. Our children know, our children, if you ask any child here in church today, what are you waiting for? What are you excited about? They'll say Christmas morning. They're excited. They're waiting for Friday morning when they get to open presents, when everything will be new and everybody will be together. You see, when children long for Christmas morning, they point in their longing, they point towards a deeper longing that all of us have for that day when everything will be new. And we will all be together. Longing for Christmas morning points to a deeper longing that all of us have, whether we have forgotten about it or not. You see, in the first verse of our reading today, in John's revelation of the way things will be one day, he says, Then I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. He saw into the future and gives us a glimpse for one thing that will be true about when Christ returns. Everything will be made new. 
all of those brand new products wrapped up under our Christmas trees right now, all of those will fade away one day. But God will make all things new. That's what our hearts are really longing for. So that waiting, that anticipating Christmas morning points to a deeper longing that all of us have, and Advent reminds us how to wait for those things. So what exactly are we waiting for? What will be true for us when Christ comes back? Well, our text this morning, Revelation 21, shows us three things. It, it has us anticipate three gifts from God that we'll all be able to open together on that last day. Three things await us, three things in the newness of the new creation, three gifts. The first gift that we see in our text today in John's Revelation is pretty amazing. This is the first gift God will give for us on that ultimate Christmas day when he returns. Gift number one is that God will remove the source of all evil. God will remove the source of all evil. In the second part of that first verse, after it says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth will pass away, there's this phrase and it says, for the sea was no more. The sea was no more. What does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be no beaches in heaven? I hope for Pastor Chuck's sake that's not true. <laughs> He'll bring his beach chair to heaven. The sea was no more. It says, what does that mean? We're always looking in Revelation for what's God trying to tell us about himself in Revelation. It says the sea was no more. In the ancient world, the sea usually symbolized chaos. And in the book of Revelation specifically, the sea is the place from which the great beast arises, the great beast who blasphemes Christ. The beast that Jesus conquers once and for all comes out of the sea in the earlier chapters of Revelation. And here in Revelation 21, when John gets to see that picture of that ultimate final day, it says the sea, the source of that great beast, will be no more. God will remove the very source of all evil. How about that for the first present we get to open on the last day? Somebody should say hallelujah to that one. Yes, God will remove the source of all evil. The sea will be no more. I remember the summer of 2010. I remember one day turning on the news and hearing about that oil well accident in the Gulf of Mexico. Do you remember it? The Deepwater Horizon. We saw the images of the oil platform on fire. It was a big tragedy, but way deep down beneath that on the ocean floor, the cap to the oil well itself had broken off. Remember this image? The camera was fixed on it. They had a camera down there on the ocean floor, and it showed thousands of barrels of oil just spewing out into the ocean. I remember thinking, oh man, someone's got someone's to fix that. 
And then we went to bed that night. We woke up the next morning and turned on the screens again, and there was that camera showing all of that oil still spewing out as we had slept the night before. It was going on into the next day, and then a third day, and then a fourth day. Does anyone remember how many days oil was just spewing from that spot? 87 days. I remember that summer, this was a huge, it made a huge impression on me. I was very concerned about that. And I remember seeing another image of a marine biologist on the beach, you know, with his uh, rubber gloves on, holding a seagull covered in oil, you know, and trying to clean off the oil that had been caked onto that bird from the oil spill. I remember thinking to myself, that's great, please help that bird, but we've got to stop that oil from pumping out on the ocean floor. There's a source of all that oil that's impacting all the wildlife. we got to fix that. Until one day, 87 days later, finally the news came out. Oh, they had capped the well. The source of the oil had stopped. That serves as a pretty vivid metaphor for sin in our world. Sin spews out into the world from the source of all evil, and it impacts everything. But there will come a day... When the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in by Christ's return, where it says the sea will be no more, that means he'll remove the source of all evil. You know, it occurs to me we're a little bit like that bird, you know, we're all stained by sin. And maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, I thought that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he conquered sin and death. Well, that's true. That's already true, but there's a not-yet reality to the fullness of Christ's victory. He did conquer Satan by rising from the dead, but he has not yet come again to fully realize the full impact of that victory. The source of all evil one day will be removed from the equation entirely. It's like to go back to that metaphor of the oil spill. We live in the time when the oil well has been capped from the ocean floor but we're still dealing with the consequences of all that spilled oil in our lives. There will come a time, brothers and sisters, when Christ returns, when he will remove the source and the residue and the impact of sin. That's just the first gift. Let's see what else he has in store for us. He'll remove the source of all evil. He will also unite all who have been divided. Jesus will unite all who have been divided. Verse 3 says this, And I, John, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Three times in that brief verse, it says the word, with them. You see, sin has separated us from God. We don't have full communion with God in this present age, but there will come a time when Christ returns. This is what our hearts long for, that time when he'll remove the source of all evil and he'll remove the barrier that separates us from him and us from one another. 
He will be with us. He will be our God. We will be his people, just like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden when they walked with God in the coolness of the morning. There will come a time when he will remove that barrier. 2 Corinthians 5 spells it out very clearly for us. This is a text that keeps coming back into my mind every week or so, all throughout the year of 2015. 2 Corinthians 5 says that in Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. In Christ, by his death and his resurrection, has reconciled the world to himself. And then it says, therefore, be reconciled to God. And the other consequence of that, it says, is for us to be reconciled to, be, to one another. It says we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We taste sometimes now in our union here in church what it's going to be like ultimately when all the barriers of sin will be removed. And God will unite all who've been divided. First of all, he'll unite us back with him. And secondly, he'll unite us back with one another. Is there anything this morning that separates you from God? Is there anything that separates you from the person you're sitting next to in the pew? We look forward to, we long for, we hope for that day when God will unite once and for all, all who have been divided. Christmas morning gives us a foretaste of that, doesn't it? I love Christmas morning when everybody's together. Everybody's there gathered in the living room. I don't care how warm it is this week, I'm lighting a fire. We're going to gather around the fire. We're all going to be together. I like to picture all the living rooms across town on this coming Friday morning. Everybody will be where they're supposed to be. Dads, moms, siblings. We're all going to be there together. You know, on a typical Friday morning in Greenwich, the other 51 Friday mornings of the year, it's not that way, is it? We're not all together in the living room. Dad's at his desk somewhere. Mom's at Soul Cycle. Brothers and sisters are at school, but this Friday, because it's Christmas, we'll all be together. God will unite all who have been divided. It's a foretaste, Christmas morning is, to the ultimate day when he comes again and brings us those gifts, removing the source of all evil and uniting all who have been divided. Now, I realize in mentioning that second gift that some of you are thinking about Friday morning and you're thinking, yeah, but not in my house. Maybe there's been a divorce. Maybe there's been a death of somebody who died too young. Maybe one of your children has run off and not everyone will be where they're supposed to be on Christmas morning. Well, let me tell you about the third gift. He'll remove the source of all evil. He'll unite all who've been divided. But thirdly, he will heal. He will heal all who hurt. Let's read verse 4 together. It says this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. I'm amazed by this verse because it would have been enough for God to say, there won't be any more crying, there won't be any more pain, there won't be any more mourning. But way more powerfully than that even, it doesn't just say there won't be any more crying, it says He will wipe away every tear. He will personally, God will personally heal every wound. All of the ways we've been impacted by sin, all of the residue of the source of evil that has covered our lives like the oil on that bird, He will personally come to each one of us and wipe away every tear, every way that we've been wounded. Here at church, we have an inner healing prayer ministry, and we pastors and those of us who are involved in that ministry hear from you about the ways sin has wounded you, about the way people impacted by sin have wounded you. We all have scars, we all have wounds, and we can even bring them to mind in a moment like this and just recognize them and wait and hope for and long for that time when Christ returns and He removes the source of all evil. He unites all who've been divided and He looks at us in all of our pain and woundedness and He personally will enter in and wipe away every tear. We've forgotten to wait for that. In our frantic rush, in our crazed busyness and cycles on the achievement treadmill, we've forgotten to look up into the sky, to long for, to wait for His return when everything will be made new, when God will enter in and remove the source of all evil once and for all, hallelujah. He will unite all who've been divided and He will wipe away every tear. He'll heal all who hurt. Let's remember this Christmas to wait for that. Amen.